Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Semicha podcast. This is the first session of our first course, Tanakh and the Halachic Mindset. It is very common today to start the uh, studies of Semicha with uh, Shohan Aruch, of Shabbat, etc. But it is extremely important to base our knowledge on the foundations of the Torah and the Tanakh, since this is the only part that we have in writing which we believe to be the Word of God. This is the Divine Word. All of the rest, all of the Oral Law, even the parts that we believe came down generation after generation from Mount Sinai were eventually put down and written by human beings. Whereas the uh, Torah and Vim Tuvim were written with different levels of divine inspiration. So it is important for us to see, to go through uh, select chapters of Tanakh and see how they, uh, they shape and craft our understanding of the halachic mindset of our obligation to fulfill mitzvot of the commitment that we have towards the written law, the oral law, the uh, decrees and um, laws instituted by the rabbis, what is the, uh, what is the authority of the judges or the rabbis in each and every generation? How was Judaism practiced in the past? What are the things that the, uh, the prophets in different periods emphasized did we practice Judaism in the past exactly as we, as we do today? All these other questions will be addressed as we go, try to go, chrono- not chronologically as much as uh, by the order of the Tanakh, but we are going to use the, uh, the interbiblical method of interpretation where we use, where we look at other books of Tanakh as a method to shed light on certain parts of Tanakh that might be uh, more obscure or uh, or less understandable. So, of course, we're going to start with Bereshit. And uh, before we go to Tanakh, we'll go to the first question that every child who studies Tanakh in an Orthodox uh, day school or yeshiva, or anyone who goes to a beginner's uh, course on Bereshit faces, and this is the question raised by Rashi. Of course, he quotes the Midrash. And the question is, Mipnema in other words, what Rashi is saying, the Torah should not have started with the story of the creation of the world, followed by the story of the flood and the story of Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, their descendants, going to Egypt. The Torah should not have mentioned the slavery in Egypt, the miracles, the parting of... No, sir. Before the parting of the of the sea, that's where the Torah should have stopped. Before the uh, should have started, before the the Exodus, 
when God tells Moshe and Aaron to tell Ben Israel, "Hachodesh hazel achem, Rosh Hodashim, Rishonu lachem lechodesh Hashanah." This month should be the first month in your calendar. Why would why would the Torah have to start there? Rashi says, "Shehi mitzvah Rishonah." It's the first mitzvah that was given to the nation as a nation and not as an individual practice as we see with certain things in the book of Bereshit. Rashi answers the question, again based on the Midrash, that the, uh, the Torah started in Bereshit in order to repel the arguments of other nations who would come and accuse the Israelites of conquering the land and taking it by force when they don't deserve it. And the answer of the Israelites will be, we're talking about the Israelites under Yoshua entering and conquering Eretz Yisrael, the answer will be, the whole world was created by God, and He divided the lands among the nations, and He gave it to other nations in His will, and by His will, He took it from them and gave it to us. So, Rashi raises the question and answers and answers it and moves on. So it seems to the reader that the, the question has been answered, the question has been addressed. But the problem is, as we go through this Rashi, that the premise of the question has remained. And the premise is that the Torah is a book of law. And anything that is not immediately connected to the legal practice, the observance of Torah and mitzvot, should not be there. The, uh, the reason or the argument that was found to justify the story of creation and the forefathers and the, and the slavery in Egypt is an ideological, is an ideological one that, uh, is, which is meant to help us explain why we own the land of Israel. Which, by the way, is an argument that worked, might have worked well in the past, but now might put us into uh, political, political problems. Because when we come and say that we own the land of Israel because God gave it to us, we are uh, rousing the ire of all those around us who say that this, this land was given to us by another God. There's no need to say that. Whatever is happening now in Eretz Israel, the, the state of Israel was established uh, following the decision of the United Nations, and whatever followed later on was a normal, uh, not normal, it could be a violent, but uh, a process that happens in many other countries around the world, and yet has to be settled and addressed in the, through the regular political and diplomatic diplomatic channels, and not with religious arguments that just uh, exacerbate the situation. However, when we go back to the to the question that Rashi raises, where which is the Torah should have started in the chapter in the twelfth chapter of Shemot with uh, the uh, the commandment of Hodashim. As I said, we remain with the with the premise that the Torah is only a book of laws, and there's nothing you could learn from Bereshit except for the uh, idea that the land belonged to God and He gives us gives it to people as they want. I'm not saying that this is what Rashi wanted to say, but this is the subliminal message that remains with the reader. Why, of all the Midrashim that were available to Rashi, all the wonderful Midrashim on um, Bereshit, he chose this particular verse 
I think is pretty clear. Rashi lived in the uh, the eve of the Crusades. He knew of the great dangers that were threatening his people. And he was also aware of the fact that Eretz Yisrael at the time was uh, controlled by the Muslims and that a Christian army is now going to uh, to travel to Israel and to conquer it from them. In this whole turmoil, the Jews stand aside as people with no country, no citizenship, and uh, it, it seems no protector. So this is one of the uh, devices that Rashi uses to uplift the spirit of his readers, of his listeners, and to say, God is with us, and when the time comes, he will take it. He will take the land from them and will give it to us. It took a thousand years for this to happen, but it helped Rashi's generation. When we get at a certain point to discuss the commentaries of the Torah and the um, like, how Rashi himself viewed his commentary to the Torah, we'll see that he never thought that his uh, commentary is the is the last word, is the ultimate commentary to the Torah. Uh, to the contrary, he told his grandson Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir Rashbam that if he had time. He would have written new commentaries according to the new understandings that he has on a regular basis, but he just did not have the time for that. So, putting that aside, we will now approach Bereshit and ask this question, what is it we learn from the book of Bereshit? Why is it that the four other books of the Torah, which contain many more concepts of halakha and practice, are prefaced by this book, that speaks about creation, the flood, and the story of the forefathers. So, we'll have to uh, to assume that there is a deeper message here for us, and indeed there is. The, uh, the Torah, in the book of Bereshit, communicates to us on several levels. One is the story of mankind as, as a society, and when talking about this perspective, where we see uh, issues of morals and ethics that relate to the whole uh, to the whole race, we see how humans uh, behave when they are confronted with a challenge, how they uh, let later deteriorate to uh, to crimes, to violent crimes, to deliberate uh, uh, crimes, to crimes in the name of the government, and uh, eventually bring to the destruction of the world. The uh, in that vein, it also describes the different societies that man has attempted to create. We'll see uh, the uh, what we call the society or the the government of the pre-flood era, the Tower of Babel, and the uh, and the cities of Sodom, Vamora, Sodom, and Gomorrah. And there's another there's another line. Here into the story, and which is mainly in the first chapters of Bereshit, in the first three chapters of Bereshit, and that is the development of each human being. It is the story of a coming of age, from childhood to adulthood, and teaching us how to to deal with the world and with the challenges that it gives us. We call it sometimes Behera uh, Hofshit, free will, but it's a, it's a story of uh, empowerment as well as a story of challenge. Then we have an additional um, 
or we could call it the storyline, and that is of the individuals with more emphasis on their interactions and communication, something that starts more after the flood, as we get uh, to zoom in on individuals such as Avraham, Sarah, their descendants, their families, and we could say that in essence, the book of Bereshit is the book of communication. The whole creation is communication. Nature communicates through DNA, through uh, uh, the atoms, the subparticles communicate. The elements that are mentioned in the first verses of the Torah all are all described as communicating in other places. In Tanakh, Hashamayim ve'aretz, the earth and the heavens. We have the Pasuk, Hashamayim mesaperim kebodel, miknaf ha'aretz z'mirot shamanu. We hear songs from the corner of the earth. The word Ruach, Ruach Elohim, also appears in Tanakh in the sense of speaking Ruach Elohim. The Berbi, the Spirit of God, speaks through me. Water, uh, even in, uh, in our everyday association, is associated with the with noise or speaking, but we definitely see it in the uh, in Tehillim, Mizmorah David Havul Hashem Ben Tehillim, the uh, in the Psalm where we read that Mikol Maim Rabim, the voices or the sound of the water. So the idea of communication is uh, really uh, an idea that permeates the Book of Bereshit, and it teaches us some concepts and rules of behavior that one cannot legislate. If, for example, we see that there is a miscommunication between, later on we'll see, between uh, Yitzhak and Rivka regarding the education of their children, where uh, it seems that Yitzhak prefers one of the children and Rivka prefers the others, but there's no communication between them. And as a result, Rivka encourages her son Yaakov to deceive his father and take the blessings from him. We learn the lesson through the story, through the narrative of what is... We can't say what is right, what is wrong, but rather we look at the uh, the arguments and the motives of each one of the of the characters. What was what was Yaakov or Sarah uh, or Rivka or Yitzhak or Esav? What were they thinking? Why did they act the way they did? What were the consequences? Yaakov had to run away. Uh, he had to flee his, uh, uh, his homeland... He wasn't able to see his parents. There, uh, there was an animosity between him and Esav. He was haunted by what he did, as we'll see, to the end of his life. So all these things come into play and teach us how to behave and how to not behave. And in that sense, many stories of Bereshit are cautionary tales. Even stories that involve uh, God teach us what we should not do. As a matter of fact, the first time that we find the concept of regret in Tanakh, it's a divine regret. We don't hear Adam regretting for transgressing uh, God's word. We don't see Cain regretting or showing remorse after, his kill, after he killed his brother. Nor do we see Lamech or Noah or any one of them showing remorse for anything that happened. It is God that says, he regrets, first he regrets creating mankind, and then he regrets destroying them. So this is a concept that we are going to see throughout Bereshit. So let us go back now, now that we've made this introduction. Let us look at the two first chapters of Bereshit, because they are 
crucial for our understanding of what is it that God wants from us. As we'll see later, the question is what God wants from us dictates our uh, daily halakha. Does God want me, for example, when when the we'll take for an example a situation where someone comes into my house and um, does not wash his hands before uh, before eating bread. So, where some rabbis would say, don't invite that person or insist that he washes uh, his hands, and other rabbis say, let this person come into your house and let them not wash their hands. Don't comment on that because there's a greater goal where. He, this person will feel more comfortable with Judaism and will come closer to you, or at least there will be no animosity. Now, most people look at this question in terms of being lenient or being strict. You're being strict by uh, not inviting that person or by forcing him to wash his hands, and you're being lenient in telling that he can come and he can eat a bread without washing his hands. But there's another way to look at it, and that is, what does Hashem want from me? Does Hashem want the mitzvah or the concept of washing hands before bread to be protected at all costs, or does Hashem want His Torah to be promulgated and be known to as many people as possible, even if in certain instances the uh, the mitzvah or the concept of washing hands before eating bread will not be upkept. So. This is something that we'll have to keep in mind. As now, let us look at the uh, uh, the first chapters of Bereshit. So I assume that you have the Tanakh open in front of you, and you can look at the the first chapter of Bereshit that goes from chapter one, verse one, to chapter two, verse three. This is the traditional Jewish division. It spreads over two chapters because the uh, uh, the Christian scholar who created the division into um, into chapters wanted to separate the day of Shabbat from the other day, the other days of creation, as a theological move against the uh, uh, against Judaism, which sees Shabbat as the the crown of creation and the day of rest. In any case, this is the first story of creation. It starts with the creation and the first day. It goes through day by day until it uh, culminates in the seventh day, with the completion of the heaven and the earth. The second story starts in chapter 2, verse 4, and is uh, comprised of two of two units. One ends at the end of chapter 2, verse, which is verse 25. <clears throat> this is after the, uh, the story of the creation of the woman from the man's rib. And then... There's an additional uh, development in the story in chapter 3, and this is the famous story of Adam and his wife eating from the uh, the tree of knowledge, the forbidden fruit. So, already the Midrash and other commentators, Rashi, cause the Midrash, already they have noticed that the, there is a, a discrepancy between this first story and the second story. We already delineated the Pesukim, so for the convenience of the discussion, we call them the first and the second story, where the first story is from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, and the second story is the rest of chapter 2. What are the differences between the stories? 
the the first story appears to be in a perfect order. We have seven units of creation that are self-contained. Each unit starts with a certain uh, idea. This is what God is going to create. God utters, says what he wants to be created. This thing appears or happens, and then God concludes with a uh, with a with a mark with a great sort of Elohim kitov, and God saw that it was good, and uh, that is the first day, and so on with the second day. So, so uh, on the first day, it's light and darkness. Second day, it's the firmament. Third day, the uh, the plants, and so on and so forth. So we have seven very clear units of creation, and there is a process. There is a process where Vayomer Elohim, and God said, and it was, and God reviewed it, and it was good, and day one. And God said, and it was, etc. Meanwhile, in the second chapter, we see nothing of that. We almost see uh, the signs of lack of planning and um, an organization in, the, in verses such as, for example, uh, 2 there were still no plants or bushes because God did not bring yet rain on earth and there is no man yet to cultivate the land. So if something is missing, then uh, it, it seems as if God realizes that he created the land but something is missing also then let us create man. He creates man and he places him in this world or in uh, on earth and then he plants a garden and places man in the garden. But after creating man and placing him in the garden, God realizes, sort of, of course, as if it were, God realizes that man is lonely. So he creates for him all the animals and brings them to man to see whether man could, could name them. And after man does that, he still feels lonely. He says, or he thinks, or he knows that none of these animals is a uh, is a fit for him. And then God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Let me create for him a counterpart who will help and assist him. And then God creates the woman from man's rib. So here, as I said, we see a lack of organization. The, that uh, everything is done as an afterthought. First we create men, then we see that he needs the garden, so we'll plant the garden, then we see that he needs companions, then we create companions, then uh, the animals are not enough, we're going to create the woman. So there's one, uh, one main difference. Another, main, another important difference is that of the, uh, uh, the language of negativity in the second chapter is in contrast with the first chapter. In the first chapter, we could say that there are no negative words except for the maybe the opening words of the first verse because the world has to start somewhere. So we read, The earth was in chaos and there was darkness on the face of the abyss. And the Spirit of God hovers over the, over the water. But other than that, Everything that happens in this uh, in the first chapter is positive. On the other hand, when we look at the second chapter, 
there's a uh, plethora of words that connote negativity. Uh, we start with the pasuk that I mentioned before. There were no uh, bushes yet. There were no plants yet because God did not bring rain yet. There's no man. Then um, God creates the tree of knowledge. So it's a clear indication that here we have already good and evil. Um, following that, God places Adam in the Garden Eden to protect and cultivate it, and says, You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you will eat from it, you will die. So we have the concept again of good, evil, and death, and a threat and a prohibition. Following that we read, it is not good for men to be alone. So, constantly we associate it with, uh, with evil or with negativity. Lotov, not good. Alone, loneliness. Um, then we have, It's a failure. We were not able to find uh, a companion for men. And uh, with that, we, as you could say, we conclude the, the list of uh, the litany of, of negative words in the second chapter. But it's clear that there is a contradiction between the two chapters where the first one does not have this negative air and the second one speaks about good and evil, things that are not yet there, things that are missing, things that cannot be found, and, uh, of course, the prohibition and the threat of death if one transgresses the prohibition. Another difference is the order of the things created. The first chapter is actually one of the only, if not the only, story of creation that comes to us from antiquity that uh, can actually line up with the uh, with the modern theory of evolution in the sense of a cosmogony going from uh, the uh, the major part of creation, starting with the universe, with light and darkness, or energy and matter, then uh, within within the earth, the shaping of the earth and the water on earth, then plants, then animals. The animals start with the uh, with fish, then fowl, then uh, earth animals, and then. Humankind, men and women, together. Uh, the one day I did not mention is Wednesday, where the uh, <clears throat> when the luminaries were created, and that is a is a deviation from the norm that is done from the from the storyline that was done in order to accommodate the story to the mind of the minds of the people who lived in the past. There are attempts to to explain that in physical, in terms of physics or or. Cosmology, but I think that the uh, solution is much more, uh, is much simpler, since the Torah is not meant to be a, a scientific textbook, but rather to make things understandable for people at the time. So, just as when talking about the, the two luminaries, Me'orot, the Torah calls the sun and the moon the great luminary and the small luminary, even though uh, we know that um, the, sun, the moon has no light of its own. And that they are not both of the same size, and they are completely different categories. But this is the vernacular 
This is what people understand. So, but all in all, the order is uh, pretty much an ascending order from the lowest form of creation in terms of awareness and uh, and uh, and life. So we go from the inanimate objects to plants, then fish, fowl, animals, and humans. In the second chapter, the order is completely different. We start with the creation of men. I mean, after the earth is created, man is created, then the plants, then the animals, then the fowl. So it's first animals, then birds, which is contrary to the first chapter and contrary to the order of, of uh, evolution. And then the woman is created from the uh, rib of Adam. So in the first chapter, it's the earth, plants, fish, fowl, animals, humans. In the second chapter, it's men, male only, plants, animals, fowl, and then the woman. So here's another difference. So, so far we've come to three differences. The order that we find in the first chapter versus the disarray or lack of organization that we see in the second chapter. The um, negativity that is uh, rife in the second chapter but not to be found in the first one. And the order which is different between the two chapters. Then we have another uh, significant difference and that is regarding the exact detail of the creation of the woman, where in the first chapter we read that men and women were created simultaneously, and there's one concept called mankind, meaning that one of them has no authority or superiority over the other. This is in chapter 1, verse uh, 27. Elohim et Adam betsalmo, betsalem Elohim bara oto, God created men in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, humanity is created at once. Men and women, there's full equality. It goes in line with the positive mindset of the first chapter, as mentioned before. But in the second chapter, and again in line with the negativity of the second chapter, the Torah tells us that Adam was created first, then the whole world is created to serve him, not enough for him, then the woman is created as an afterthought from the man's rib, which shows that she is uh, to be submissive to him or controlled or subdued by him, and uh, she is there in order to serve him. It's because of man's loneliness that the woman was created, as if to say that she does not have a right of survival on her own, but only to serve men. So this is another major difference between the two chapters that we must address. Another important difference between the two chapters is that in the first chapter, the Creator is referred to as Elohim, Bereshit bara Elohim, whereas in the second chapter, he is addressed to as Adonai Elohim, then, um, finally, a difference that we could find between the two uh, chapters is the way 
the process of creation is described. In the first chapter, the creation is performed by utterances, by ma'amarim, or ma'amarot, as the rabbi described it in Perkei Avot. Vayomer Elohim Yehior, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Vayomer Elohim Yehirakiah, in verse 6, God said, let there be uh, firmament, and so it was. In verse 9, Vayomer Elohim Yikavuamayim, and God said, let the water gather into one place. In verse 11, God said, let the earth spring forth um, plants. In verse 14, God says, let there be uh, luminaries. And then in verse uh, 20, and God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let fowl fly over the earth. In verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth uh, living creatures. And in verse 27, God created man in his image, in his image, uh, but we don't read whether it was uh, a physical act, but we don't have uh, something to go against the idea that it was again done with, uh, with an utterance. So, but this only refers to this, the first chapter. When we look at the process of creation in the second chapter, we find that God is actually described in human terms. It starts in verse 7, And Hashem Elohim crafted men dirt from the earth. So the word Vayitzer, which today we translate as create, or Yitzhiratiyot is creativity, actually comes from the word Tzura, uh, shape, and the word Yotzer in Hebrew as a noun referred to the uh, to the profession of the potter, because the the potter takes a lump of clay and shapes it into a a pot or into a dish. So God is described here as the potter sitting by his uh, by this by the stones and creating creating this uh, this pottery, this amazing dish or utensil or vehicle called men. And then he blows. The spirit of life into his nostrils is again a an act that reminds us the uh, um, the act of the glass blower, another artisan who uh, who makes uh, utensils and gives them shape through blowing. So God does that, another human action. Then God becomes a gardener in verse eight. He plants a garden in Eden in the east and puts men there. And he makes sure that trees will, will come forth. In verse 10, he, make, he, uh, he made grow from the earth all the, all the trees. It was in sharp contrast with the previous chapter when God says, let the earth bring forth trees. And finally, after the creation of, uh, of the animals, also with the same term, which is to shape uh, clay into into pots or into utensils, we read in verse uh, twenty verses twenty one twenty two that God uh, put Adam to sleep because he's the first uh, anesthesiologist, and then he takes one of his ribs, covers it with flesh, builds it, and he builds it into a woman. He builds this rib and brings it to man. So. 
If we would have one one difference or two differences, we might have been able to reconcile them. But all the differences that we mentioned are not only differences, but some of them are uh, structural issues. Some of them are uh, issues such as the name of God or an ideological issue as the uh, creation of men and women. Is men and women, when men and women, are they equals? Or is men superior to women? So to have so many differences across so many different levels of, of the text, and to say that they are all reconcilable is very hard. Rashi, following the Midrash, tried to do so by claiming that the second chapter is nothing more than a detailed account of, of the first chapter. But as I said, when you compare them thoroughly, you see that this is not the case. And great commentators already discussed that. I just want to go with the uh, uh, to bring this up and put it all together in uh, connection to what we uh, we open our discussion with, and that is, what does Hashem want from me? So if we look at the, at the text of Bereshit, and we look at this divine message, we have to uh, to come to the conclusion that the differences and contradictions between the first two chapters of Bereshit are in themselves a certain message. Uh, biblical critics took that contradiction to mean that the uh, the two chapters did not come from one author. We believe that they were written by one author, and that, that one author put the differences there deliberately to um, to attract our attention and for us to analyze and understand what is the message that is embedded in the in the text. So that message is, and here I'm following an idea that uh, I first saw as a teenager in one of the books of Rabbi Arya Kaplan about the, uh, the resurrection of the dead and the end of days, and where he says that uh, the the first chapter is the ideal world, the, the world of God, that might have never existed, and the second world is the world of men where we live. And he said this, he said these words in the context of the uh, women's liberation movement of the, uh, the, I guess he wrote it in the 70s or 80s, and what he was saying is that there is something noble in the movement because it brings us from this world, from man's world, the second world of creation, to back to the first world with the ideal world, the world of God, and that this in itself is part of the messianic process. He did have his reservations, but I took this concept, I'm going to go with it to, uh, to look at the broader picture and to say that all the differences that I've mentioned before clearly demarcate those two chapters as one being the chapter that is written uh, to describe God's world, the ideal world, which as a matter of fact never existed. It's a, it's a utopian world that exists only in the text of Bereshit. And that is sort of the, the world that we keep looking for, the, uh, the paradise lost. But as we'll see, paradise was never lost. Paradise is only in our imagination. We always think that there used to be a better world. And most humans think like that. Most most people who grew up in a normal environment, in a normal ha- normal household, uh, long for their childhood because that was a blissful, beautiful world. Everything was better back then. So, as I said, the first chapter describe, describes God's world. This is the ideal world. And as such, 
because it's an ideal world, there's a perfect structure of day one, day two, day three, day four, etc., with a formula, as just God uh, is capable of doing. God wants A, He says it, it makes it happen, God says it's good, with day one, move on to the next day, and so on and so forth, until the end of the seventh day. Because of that, uh, because of that, uh, concept in the in the first chapter everything is organized not only the structure of the days but also from day to day the we find ascending uh, an ascending order there is progress from the inanimate objects to plants to uh, fish fowl animals and then mankind whereas in this in the second chapter this whole thing is messed up what by the way what happened between the first chapter and the second chapter where do we have this transition point from God's ideal world to man's flawed world? This is exactly the last piece of the creation of, uh, as described in the first chapter, and that's the creation of mankind. The Torah is not um, coming to tell us how things happen, but rather to describe to us how things are today. This is reality. The reality is that there are humans in the world. And as a result of that, there's evil in the world. If there were no humans in the world, then the world would run, maybe in a boring way, but there would be no major catastrophes the kind humans create, such as uh, nuclear uh, nuclear uh, bombs or, or wars or diseases that are spread by humans who live in places where they should not live, etc., etc., uh, and of course, all the the crimes that are are committed on an individual level between uh, between people, murder, uh, theft, wars that are conducted, all these things would not have happened if men did not live. So God culminates the creation of the first day of the seven days of the first world with the creation of men. But then right away the the wheel turns and we have the world of men. So, whereas in the first chapter there's a perfect structure, the second chapter is uh, in disarray, there's chaos, there's the, uh, lack of organization, oh, this is missing, we didn't know we should create uh, plants for man to eat, we should create the animals for him to have a companion, then we should create the woman. Um, the same thing with the order. The order in the first chapter is, an, is a logical order which fits God's world. This is how you do things. You start from the bottom and you go up, land, etc. In man's world, there's no need for order. You just do what is in front of you right now, and if something is missing, you'll pick it up as you go along. Uh, that's a different different approach, not the approach of the Creator. Then we have uh, the very strong evidence that one world is God's world, the other one is man's world, in the uh, ubiquity of negative words, words in the second chapter. Second chapter, we find words like evil, death, and prohibition, threats, etc. And we don't find all these in the, in the first chapter. So this shows us that the, uh, the first chapter is part of the divine uh, perfect world. Second chapter is man's flawed world. Also, we find that in God's world, men and women are created simultaneously and therefore are equal, and they stand on the same platform, they are at the same level. In man's world, however, the uh, 
The woman is created as an afterthought and she's there only to serve men. So this is another uh, another proof that those two stories deal with two different, completely different uh, uh, different worlds. <clears throat> then we have the, the fifth difference that I mentioned was the name of God, Elohim and Hashem Elohim. So I don't want to, uh, in this series, I don't want to go into Kabbalah, but uh, this is a concept that, that makes, uh, makes sense even in the, in the Pshat level of the Pasuk, and that is the significance of the names of God. In Kabbalah, the word Hashem is associated with Midat Rahamim, with the attribute of mercy and loving kindness, while the, act, the, uh, the name Elohim is associated with rigor, with the harsh judgment, um, etc. So, as I said, without relying on Kabbalah, if we look at the Pshat, the actual meaning of the, of the words that make the name, we realize that the word Elohim is really associated to judgment in the Torah, as we read in Parashat Mishpatim, Asher Shion Elohim Yeshalem Shalem Lerayu. If uh, one person is accused by another for withholding money or not returning a deposit or a lost object, they should go Ada Elohim. They should go uh, and see the judges, and the judges will discuss how much they have to pay. This is uh, where, the, where we see in the Torah that Elohim is a synonym to the uh, to the judges. So Elohim is a name, it comes from the word El, strength in Hebrew. It, it's a word that uh, describes harsh judgment. This is in uh, Shemot chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. El Elohim, and then Ad Elohim This is This is in the second chapter. In the second chapter, sorry, this is in the first, in the first chapter, we find only the name Elohim. Elohim connotes harsh judgment. And like the rabbis say in the Midrash, the world cannot be run or directed under harsh judgment because very fast it will come to a total halt. The only, the only place where rigorous judgment could live without destroying society is in a perfect society. For example, if a teacher says, if a teacher decides that every time a kid, uh, a student in his class, breathes too loudly, that kid will be suspended, the teacher might find himself very quickly without any students in his classroom. If, however, he's teaching a class of people who are trained in uh, meditative yoga breathing, and they know how to breathe without anyone hearing them, then he could apply the the law with maximum strength. Like anyone who will be heard breathing will be kicked out of class, but there will be no consequences because nobody will breathe loudly. Whereas in the other class, people will not be able to do that. The same concept is with me that with the names, as they convey the concept of. Uh, judgment as Elohim, or as we shall see soon, uh, the name Adonai Havaya. So Elohim is judgment, so it fits in a world which is perfect because no one will sin and no one will be punished. In God's perfect world, there's no evil. 
just as we saw by the lack of evil or uh, negative words from the first chapter. In the second chapter, God is referred to as Adonai Elohim. The word Adonai, even though we uh, we pronounce it as Adonai, which means my master or master of the universe, it is written famously as Yud and then Hey Vav Hey. And this name, which we call Shem Havaya, is actually a combination of the three uh, conjugations of the word for uh, the word to be liot in th- in the three tenses, it is haya was hove is and yeh will be. So the name havaya, the name Adonai, as it's spelled yud hey vav hey, actually describes God as constantly changing. The God of a minute ago is not a, the God of a minute ahead. And that is in line with the idea of Hamim, of mercy and loving kindness, where God adjusts himself to us as if it were. God is, of course, immutable and unchanging, but in our relationship with God, we better relate to God who can present Midat, or the, the attribute of Adonai, of Havaya, of being always in the moment, not always the same thing. But if I'm time, at times of sorrow, Hashem will be there for me in one format, in one way, and at times of great happiness, God will be there for me in a different way. So, Havaya, or Adonai Elohim, is a perfect name for the second chapter, where a man's evil action already uh, already kicks in. And we have this um, uh, inability to, to uh, withstand harsh judgment. Finally, the last question that I present is actually could be the title of the whole dichotomy between the first and second chapter, and that is that the Torah clearly says in the first chapter, "Vayivra Elohim et Adam betzalmo, betzelem Elohim baraoto." Vayivra Elohim et Adam betzalmo, betzelem Elohim baraoto. I believe that there is no sentence that could be more important to that than that in in the ancient world and probably even until today. The idea that all humans were created in the image of God is an amazing revolutionary concept that uh, was unheard of in the time of of the Torah. People either either were fully uh, slaves, full-time slaves, or free men who owned slaves. There were gods and demigods and rulers and, and different levels of power, and people worshipped other people. No one came and said, we are all humans, we are all equal, and we all have a divine spark, the, uh, the divine power that motivates us. To say that we were created in the image of God was to level the, uh, the field and say we are all equal, all humans. If all humans are equal, there's no room for Avodah Zarat, there's no room for idolatry, because we were all created in the image of God. So there must be one, there's one God, and there's one common denominator, denominator for all humanity. This is in the first chapter. In the second chapter, however, God is described in human terms. He builds, he plants, he, uh, he, he, he crafts the clay like a potter, and he blows the spirit of life like a glass blower. All these actions 
uh, portray God as a human being. Why is that? <clears throat> For God to be created, to be, sorry, described in human terms is the greatest flaw of humanity. Is the direct opposite of the first chapter. The message that Torah tried to convey in the first chapter is that we are created in the image of God. We have a divine spark and we have to rise to the task of making the world as God wanted it to be. A world, a perfect world, a world with no discrimination, with no hatred, with no flaws, and with no uh, with with equality, where we see each other as equals, men, women, all races, all 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 genders, or um, or beliefs. And the uh, the second chapter, where God is described in human terms, is the world where each religion, or even people within one religion, each one of them sees God as a reflection of his or her own personality. So, an angry person believes in an angry God. A compassionate person believes in a compassionate God. The uh, a woman might believe in a God who was more feminine, and a, and a man in a God who was more masculine, and so on, and so forth. And but not only that, we attribute to God the same uh, qualities and God forbid even flaws that we ourselves have. So this is the core of paganism, where the gods fight and and uh, and envy each other. And try to deceive each other, just as humans do. They're just superhumans uh, who live uh, on the Olympus or any other uh, remote location, and they don't have to be engaged in human affairs unless they want to destroy them or take something from them. Was the um, the antithesis of what the Torah wants to present. So, all in all, now when we look at the two chapters, we could give them titles, as separate titles. The first chapter is the chapter of how. Man was created in the image of God in a perfect world. The second chapter is how man created God in his own image and how that brings the world to imperfection. So now if we go back to the original question and we ask, what is it that Torah wants from us? What is the message conveyed in those two chapters? There are several messages. First of all, the fact that the true chapter are irreconcilable, you can, we cannot reconcile them with, with each other, means that none of them cannot, can be taken literally. If we have two different, complete two different versions, one of them, none of them cannot be taken literally. Each one of them has a, some of the truth, but not the whole truth. So the first, the first chapter tells us that God is the creator of the world. It doesn't come to tell us how exactly God created the world, because even today, with modern science and technology, we are still lacking information. We have much more information than anyone would have had two or three thousand years ago. But it is not divine information yet, and most people cannot really understand or digest that information. So this is not what the Torah is concerned with. It is not concerned with telling us exactly how the world is was created but rather for us to understand that there is a creator and that there is a possibility for the world to be perfect and good the second chapter comes to tell us what is our duty in the world our duty is we have to protect guard cultivate the world meaning we have to protect the world from harm something which was not even uh, conceivable 
up to 100 years ago because we, we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to think of how we could harm nature, even though that uh, in, in some uh, extreme conditions people did destroy uh, the world even before the modern era, uh, like for example Easter Island where they harvested the, uh, uh, the tree, the trees on the land to, for, to erect their statues and until it brought destruction on the island. But it never happened on a, on a global level until today. Uh, so this is one thing that God tells Adam that he has to do, the other one is the Ovda, to cultivate the land. And cultivating the land is taking the, that which is uh, potential and realizing, realizing the potential, turning, turning raw material into furniture, creating ideas, creating art, uh, language, music, all these things are the creative things that we keep on doing and, and we develop and improve uh, the world where we live. But the mission is always there. We have to constantly strive to get back to the first chapter where there, where we had, at that time, a perfect world. So now, if we take all this and we try to apply it to the Allahic process, we have to understand that um, the Torah wants us to get back to a perfect world which one of the characteristics of its perfection is that there is an equality of men and women. So we have to look at halakha uh, through, these, uh, through these glasses and ask ourselves, is it okay that women are, be, are being discriminated against? Or uh, are certain practices in halakhot uh, good or, or, or not good in that context? Uh, where did they come from? Is this the original intention of the Torah? Or maybe these, uh, uh, these practices that show uh, discrimination were born in a different period, a different time, whether where the atmosphere uh, uh, was uh, uh, misogynic. So all these questions have to be asked in, in the context of understanding the two uh, first chapters of Bereshit. And later on, as we move on to chapter 3, we'll see that there also... There's a, there's a deep message regarding the idea of free will and what is a sin and what is it that God uh, wants from us. So we'll conclude with the, the concept that when we look at the first two chapters of Bereshit, we have the perfect world, God's world, where man is created in the image of God in the first chapter, and the second world, the imperfect world of men in, in, the, uh, in the second chapter, and in that world where which in which we live, we have to constantly try to get back to the uh, ideal world of the first chapter. This concludes the first session of uh, the uh, the first course of the Semicha uh, podcast on uh, on Tanakh and the halachic mindset. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.